Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If, I said, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. The Gospel of the Lord. Well, good morning. morning. Someone once said to me, man, you read a lot of scripture before your sermon, and my answer is, yes, we do. Um, I didn't think any verse could be left out. That wasn't a whole chapter. That was, believe it or not, a half chapter of John 18. My name's Paul. For those who are visiting, I'm the senior pastor here, and we have someone visiting. We actually have several visitors here today, so again, welcome. Thank you for visiting 
I met a woman here who said, I just want to find a church that preaches the word of God. Well, amen. Today we're going to dive into the word of God and in, in greater detail than maybe many of us have even seen this passage. And I really hope uh, it represents good news to everyone here. Uh, we also recognize not everyone here is even a follower of Jesus. That's okay. We're so glad you're visiting our family today. So as I begin this sermon, can you bow your heads with me as I share another brief word of prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. And in the oldest prayer of the church, we pray, come Holy Spirit, come in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, let me begin by asking this question. How do you face failure? As shared in his book, Charles Swindoll uh, has this to say in Hand Me a Brick, or excuse me, Hand Me Another Brick, the title of his book. Thomas Edison invented the microphone, the phonograph, the incandescent light, talking movies, and more than a thousand things. Yet despite all of these achievements, one night of failure stands out in his life. It was an evening in December 1914, after Edison had worked for 10 years developing our storage battery. Not only had the pursuit cost him a lot of time, it had cost him a lot of money. Well, on that fateful night in 1914, December 10th, 1914 to be exact, the unthinkable happened. A spontaneous combustion broke out in the film room of his West Orange New Jersey manufacturing facility. And within minutes, all of the packing compounds, celluloid for records and film, and other flammable items were caught up in an uncontrollable fire. In fact, reports indicate that the fire was so intense that the flame shot over 100 feet into the night sky and over five city blocks would end up being consumed by this fire. Fire departments from eight different towns would make their way to help put out the fire, but it was useless. The heat proved too extreme, the water pressure too low, and any fight to put the fire out was futile. On that night, December 10th, 1914, Thomas Edison lost everything. And he was 67 years old at the time. Here's a picture of the wreckage. Now, with all of his assets going up in the flames, with reports indicating it cost him $919,000 in that day and age's currency, which would be over $23 million in today's currency, how did this leader respond? Well, walking amongst the charred ruins the next morning, the 67-year-old looked around and then looked up and said these words. There is great value in disaster. All our mistakes are burned up, and thank God we can start anew. You see, friends, that's how one of the greatest inventors of all time faced disaster, faced failure. And let me ask, how about Thank you. Got charismatics in the back. Here's the question. How about you? 
How do you face disaster? And how do you face failure? Today's passage is an invitation of sorts, seeing the failure of one of Jesus' greatest disciples, Peter, we're invited to see and wrestle with our own disasters and failures. Those times when we've let our families down, those times when we've let our friends down, even those times when we've let our God down. Moreover, we're invited to see something more. When we fail like Peter, our passage makes clear we're not only to look in the mirror, we're to look for the Messiah. To find that even on our dark nights, our darkest nights, there's still hope. There's still something more for you and me. And that's why I'm excited to dive into John 18 with you this morning. Our big idea from our passage is this. On the darkest night and when the rooster crows is when the faithful love of Jesus breaks through the most. We're going to unpack this through three points. On the darkest night and when the rooster crows. And point three is when his love breaks through the most. So point one. On the darkest night, when Jesus had spoken the... I'm going to stand up. I feel like standing up. I know. Revival's coming. I always have to sit here in front of this camera at the 9 a.m. Taylor tells me I go out of the frame when I walk around, but I'm going to walk around. Point one, on the darkest night, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed Jesus, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, let me, allow me to set the scene here. Over the last several chapters of the book of John, chapters 13 through 17, Jesus has spent the most intimate time with his disciples. He has shared what we now know as the Last Supper, communion. He has modeled radical servant leadership through the washing of their feet. He has promised the gift of the Holy Spirit to them. And he's prayed for and called for transcendent and unbreakable unity in him. Now in John 18, things shift. Jesus leads his disciples out into the night, into the valley of Kidron, towards his final fate, the darkness of the cross, on what would become the darkest day in history. And as readers of this story, we are meant to feel and experience what his disciples felt and experienced that night. Much detail, as any good narrative has, much detail is supplied here or implied here. So journey with me over the next few minutes. First, this night, this spring night, would have been cool and crisp. How do we know this? Well, later in John 18, we see Peter around a fire with others warming themselves. Second, this night would have been an ominous and reflective night. Not only because Jesus' life had already been threatened by those in power, but in Jerusalem on that day, that week, they were celebrating something called the Passover. 
the time when God had delivered his people from bondage in Egypt through the sacrifice of unblemished lambs, the time when the blood spilled by one actually saved another, the time when God's judgment was allowed to pass over his people in a supreme act of loving kindness towards his people. I'm sure, if you can imagine, I'm sure as they stepped out of the upper room into that dark, crisp night, all sorts of thoughts were swirling through the disciples' heads. Yet there's more here. There's something more we're meant to see to add further weight to this story, this narrative. It's where Jesus led his disciples that night. Now, this might, this might shock our modern sensibilities, but during the Passover festival, do you know how many lambs would have been sacrificed that week? Over 200,000 lambs would have been sacrificed in Jerusalem. It's crazy, right? That's a lot of animals and that's a lot of blood. Well, guess where all that blood was directed to drain from the temple or the altar of the temple? The brook of Kidron. The one cited in our passage. The valley of Kidron, precisely where Jesus led his disciples that Night. Thus, if you can imagine, as dark as it may seem, as Jesus and his disciples walked through the valley of Kadron that night, they would have walked through walls and water of blood. It's dark, isn't it? Is this an accident? It is not. As one theologian puts it, if I can find my place, this divine poetry shows that what was about to take place was not beyond the control of God, regardless of how it appeared. You see, on this night, this darkest of nights, Jesus was entering the darkness, ready to give his life for you and for me. Now, do you feel the intentionality and the weight of this story? To fully grasp the weight of this story, we, we actually need to look at how two different elements of darkness were confronted by Jesus that night. The darkness out there, the darkness in the world, and the darkness in here, the darkness within us. Look at this with me. First, he confronts the darkness out there in John 18, verse 3. Judas, so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. If you parse this verse, the whole world is symbolically, symbolically represented here coming at Jesus. The Gentiles or outsiders in the form of the Roman soldiers. The Jews in the form of the officers of the chief priests and the Pharisees. And even the wayward followers, the wayward church in the form of Judas, his former disciple. And what do they do? They arrest him. They bring him to a full, a foe or bogus trial, and then they begin to mock him and beat him. Here's what we're to see. This whole arrest and encounter, they were a total sham for that day and age. 
As one theologian writes, judging from the description of rules for trials found in the Mishnah, the proceedings here were marked by serious irregularities and violations of Jewish law. The Sanhedrin, or the Jewish leaders, was not supposed to meet at night. The death penalty could not be declared on the day of the trial. There's false evidence. There's false witnesses used. Jesus was exposed to blows, as we'll see later in our text and in the coming weeks. In addition to all this, it was illegal for them, the Sanhedrin, to meet for a capital case on the eve of a Sabbath or a feast day. These violations, the theologian writes, show that Jesus' condemnation by the Jewish authorities was a travesty of justice. So what's the point? The point is Jesus didn't run from the darkness in the world out there. No, he stepped into it and confronted it, bearing the weight of its sting. Did you catch verse 4? It's my favorite in the whole passage. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and asked, whom do you seek? He was no victim. He was an agent of God in this moment. So why does this matter? I'm looking around. I see several lawyers here today. It matters because it demonstrates that God cares about all the injustice we have seen or perhaps experienced in our world. The times where there's been an abuse of power, the times when people have been oppressed, the times when we have seen or tasted the unspeakable. If you are someone who has ever wondered whether God cares about the evil in our world, look no further than Jesus. The clear answer is yes. You see, on the darkest night leading to the darkest day, Jesus willfully stepped forward and confronted the darkness, the darkness out there. This leads us to point two, when the rooster crows. So allow me to share a more personal story now. I don't think any of you, well, maybe Wes, I don't know how many of you knew me in college, obviously this lady on the front row, but when I was in college, in graduating college, I had had this huge prodigal experience and was on fire for Jesus. At the time in Chicago, I was graduating with my business and economics degree and I was graduating early. And I had been invited to pursue a master's of evangelism for free at Wheaton College. Uh, what's more, I'd been recruited by the Billy Graham Association to be secretly mentored by them with a group of up and coming church leaders. And best of all, I'd married my college sweetheart, Carly Vellner. Oh, yeah, come on. Thank you, Jonathan. All of this by the age of 21. Yet not all was right with me. The more I aimed to lead in my faith, the more I sensed I first needed to grow in my faith. Uh, I sense the Holy Spirit saying these words to me, Paul, you're not ready. You're not ready. You have all the passion to lead for me, but you don't have the character yet to lead with me. You're not ready for the lights and the eyes of all those people who will be drawn to you when you walk with me and lead with me. And this message became so clear and repetitive that I could not sleep at night. Have any of you ever had that experience where you're just trying to sleep and you just sense God is prompting you again and again and again to listen to him? Well, that was my experience. And so 
after talking to Carly and some of my mentors, here's what I decided to do. Here's what I felt God called me to do. Drop out. Drop out of all of it. Now, looking back at that time and reflecting with some of my professors in seminary where I would go later in my life, reflecting with other leaders I've had the privilege of getting to know, here's a truth that stands true not only in my life but in this passage. Jesus cares a lot more about your character than your competency. And perhaps the number one trait that demonstrates that we really know him is our humility. Let me repeat that. Jesus cares a lot more about our character and our competency. And perhaps the number one trait that demonstrates that we really know him is our humility. I don't think there is anyone who needs God's grace and help as much as I do, Mother Teresa once said. Sometimes I feel so helpless and weak. I think that's why God uses me. Because I cannot depend on my own strength, I rely on him 24 hours a day. If the day had even more hours, then I would need his help and grace during those as well. Similarly, Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote, If my sinfulness appears to me to be in any way smaller or less detestable in comparison with the sins of others, I am still not recognizing my sinfulness at all. How can I possibly serve another person in unfeigned humility if I seriously regard his sinfulness as worse than my own? And as we return to our passage, we see Jesus not only confront the darkness out there, we see Jesus confront the darkness right here in the heart of one of his top young guns, Peter. In John 18, verses 11 and 12, we read, Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And thus, Peter first overreacts to the scene. And he turns to violence in his faith not recognizing that Jesus didn't come to take a life. He came to give his life. Next, we see in verses 15 through 18 and 25 to 27, Peter go on to deny Jesus how many times? One time? Two times? No, three different times he denies Jesus. This after telling Jesus in John 13 he would do anything for him, even give up his life for him. You see, Peter had not yet come to terms with his own limitations, with his own fickle heart. And oh, how fickle and fragile our hearts can be, right? We're all in with Jesus until we're not. He's got my all and my everything until he doesn't. The reality is, at some point or another, be it tonight, tomorrow, or in the coming days, we will all deny Jesus and the rooster will crow. Even the best of us, even those of us who've been in church all of our lives, will face this reality like Peter. It might be in how we handle our words. It might be in how we handle our relationships. It might be in how we handle our schedule. It might be in how we handle our finances. It might be how we handle our lives when we believe no one else is looking. 
You see, at some point or another, all of us, even the best of us, will deny Jesus and his lordship in our lives. Our passage reads, did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it. And at once, the rooster crowed. This leads us to point three. On the darkest night and when the rooster crows, and this is the good news, is when the faithful love of Jesus breaks through the most. Returning to our Edison story, do you remember what he said after the night of the fire? There's great value in disaster. All our mistakes are burned up. Thank God we can start anew. And looking at our passage and scripture as a whole, this proves true throughout the meta narrative of God, the divine drama. Listen to this disasters in the economy of God are not meant to crush us, but to turn us, turn us back to God. Some of you need to hear that today. The failures you're facing, the disasters you're enduring are not meant to crush us, but to turn us, turn us back to him. See, the truth is until we see the real darkness in the world out there, and until we see the real darkness in the world in here, we will be unable to see what Jesus really came to do really came to do for you and me. Look once more at our passage with me. Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward, and he said to them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. And when Jesus, Jesus said this, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. And then just a short while later, he tells Peter, put your sword into a sheath. Shall I, shall I not drink the cup the Father's given me? So as we close this passage, what we need to understand is Jesus' words here in this passage are powerful and purposeful. Why do you think the band of men fell back when Jesus identified himself? Was he too loud, Will? Delaney, was he just a loud mouth? Were his disciples scary, Buffy? Kathy, did they just smell, smell bad? Too much guy time? No, no, that's not it at all. They fell because Jesus very courageously identified himself as God himself. In the original language, Jesus says, ego me, which translates into the English, I am. It's only in our modern translations that this word he is added to his response. So originally it reads, when they say, we're looking for Jesus, he says, I am. In this self-identification, ego and me, this was sacred in those times. And it was reserved, this title, for God alone. It's how God identified himself in Exodus chapter 3 and throughout the Old Testament. Thus, what we're seeing here with Jesus' candor and his claim uh, it just blows their minds. Actually, it blew them off their feet. Additionally, what are we to make of this cup that he's saying, I need to drink? The cup that comes from the Father. 
Well, this is figurative language that his original audience would have understood well. The cup of the Father, as cited in the Psalms, Isaiah, and elsewhere, represented God's wrath and judgment upon the evil in our world. So what Jesus was saying is he had come to drink that cup in the place of Peter and in the place of you and me. In other words, he'd come to be that final Passover lamb, spilling his blood for all the world to see. The late A.W. Tozer would write this, God is love and God is sovereign. His love disposes him to desire our everlasting welfare and his sovereignty enables him to secure it. But Pastor Paul, how do we know? How do we, how do we know God is actually both loving and sovereign, dealing in mercy and justice? And here's my answer or here's the passage's answer. Because of Jesus. You see, on the darkest night, And when the rooster crows is when the faithful love of Jesus is meant to break through the most. It's a paradox, and it's oh so beautiful. As we wrap up, I invite each of us to maybe take two next steps. The first is this. See yourself. See yourself for who you really are. Like Peter, understand that you, too, have limitations. Our invitation here as we head into our time of response is acknowledge your limitations and bring them before the Lord today. Jack, here's the good news. God loves imperfect people. Blaze, he loves imperfect people. Didi, he loves imperfect people like you and me. Second, see Jesus. See Jesus for who he really is. He is the ego of me, the son of God, the second person of the Godhead we're meant to see, who came to sacrifice his life for you and me. So the invitation is to see him, to trust him, to thank him, and find all of our rest, not in ourselves, but in him. It's not our cup to drink, it's his. He took it upon himself for you and for me. For on the darkest night and when the rooster crows is when the faithful love of Jesus breaks through the most. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this good news that you didn't come to take our lives but to save our lives through the person and work of Jesus Christ. God, would you search us and know us and draw forth any offensive or sinful ways in us. Cultivate in us a humility that can only be brought about by knowing you and bringing ourselves with all of our warts and all of our scars and all of our waywardness to you. And captivate us and save us by your son, Jesus. His love is greater, his love is bigger. And it costs more than we could ever imagine. I pray for individuals today in this space that they would see you and be transformed by your grace. I pray for couples who need help. You you convict them, you cut them to the heart and draw them back to you together. I pray for families that you would cover all of us, the generations to come, even represented in this room right now.
We pray for our good and your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.